and we welcome you to the Wednesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Today is the 12th of February, which means it is, of course, the birthday of our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. And to commemorate that, we have something very special, a morning show interview dating all the way back to the mid-1990s, an interview done by my morning show predecessor, Bill Guy, longtime news director of WGTD and the creator of this program. And it's a conversation he recorded with one of his favorite morning show guests, a local Abraham Lincoln expert by the name of Steve Rockstead. Here is their conversation. On the morning show today here on WGTD, we're very excited to have back with us Steve Rogstad. Steve uh, lives in Racine, and we've talked with him a couple of times before, tapping his uh, vast store of knowledge about the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. And now uh, Steve Rogstad is the co-editor of a new book called The Many Faces of Lincoln, Selected Articles from the Lincoln Herald, the book published by Mayhaven Publishing of uh, Muhammad, Illinois. And uh, Steve, we've had you here a, a couple times before, and uh, we have talked before about your interest in in Lincoln. How it started uh, when you were a boy back in in uh, in school, and uh, you are are currently uh, what is it? The review editor of the uh, the scholarly journal, the Lincoln Herald, as I understand it. What is the Lincoln Herald? Well, the Lincoln Herald is a journal, a historical journal. It's one of only two that are that is published and devoted solely to Abraham Lincoln's scholarship. It is published by Lincoln Memorial University, which is in Harrogate, Tennessee, in Cumberland Gap. And it has been published uh, as a historical journal since 1938. And uh, they just uh, put out their commemorative issue this past April, celebrating basically the centennial anniversary of Lincoln Memorial University, and which was founded in 1897. And so the Lincoln Herald has um, the longest really running publication in terms of historical um, literature dealing just solely with Abraham Lincoln, not, not necessarily the Civil War. Hmm. Now what do you do as review editor? Well, as review editor, um, it's my responsibility to get a hold, basically, of every new piece of Lincoln literature that's published be it a book, video, pamphlet, lecture, and I assign reviewers, which I have made a pretty good solid base of throughout the United States. Um, they'll, they will write the review, and in some times I will write a review, um, and then I will uh, get the review back from them. I edit the review, and then it goes in for publication, and then I also, uh, of course, do all the editing on the page proofs once it is intended to go to press so it you're constantly getting new material you're constantly finding reviewers and it's it's really a great deal of fun and the greatest thing about it is not necessarily the the work that you do because that's gratifying in and of itself mm -hmm. but it's the people that you meet um the scholars who maybe you have read of or you have read their works over the years and this past april when uh, lincoln memorial university staged a three-day historical conference commemorating, commemorating the uh, centennial of the university, they put on a three-day uh, Lincoln conference. And at that conference, I was able to meet for the first time uh, not only Tom Turner, who is the editor-in-chief 
of the Lincoln Herald, whom I've known for at least through the mail and on the phone for 15 years. But I, I, <laughs> I was able to meet him and Ronald Rietveld, who uh, is a professor of history out at Fullerton, California, and he and I have been friends for a long time. When he was 14, he discovered the only known photograph of Lincoln and death. And oh he is now um, you know, re approaching retirement and still teaching, though, out at Fullerton. And um, he he was also, by the way, a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, and he was the uh, the basically the historian historian for um, Corrie Ten Boom, who you may recall uh, wrote The Hiding Place about her oh, of course. Um, her life in Nazi Germany. So he's quite an interesting fellow to know. But I was able to meet people from uh, the East Coast, people from the West Coast, and it was really a wonderful experience. And that's one of the gratifying things about being in this field. Is is there a knack to choosing a reviewer for a given, l let's say, a, a, a new article about Lincoln comes out? I'm certain they are they're appearing all the time in scholarly journals and and doctoral dissertations and the like. Uh, what's what's the trick to uh, assigning a reviewer? Do you try to find someone perhaps who has uh, an opposite viewpoint, who might have a sympathetic viewpoint, or would have expertise in that particular area? Well, as a rule, I don't try intentionally to, f to locate a reviewer with a sympathetic viewpoint. Mm -hmm. those, those people are easy to find. <laughs> I do try to find, and, and again, I wouldn't say that I necessarily try to locate one with an adversarial viewpoint. I do try to match a review um, or an article to a reviewer um, that at least has published hopefully in that particular area. For example, if it's something on the assassination, uh, I have probably six um, scholars that I would, would initially come to mind. Uh, and then I might uh, find out, well, are they, are they interested in conspiracy theories? Are they interested in uh, maybe just John Wilkes Booth? Are they interested in you know, some peripheral aspect of the mm -hmm. assassinations? I try to narrow it down in that way because um, sometimes you're, you just find a reviewer who's much more knowledgeable. Um, and that's what I strive for, is I try to find somebody who will write objective reviews of material. Um, uh, and, of course, there's politics involved in this, as in anything, because um, the hard part is, you know, everybody knows one another in the field, and everyone, um, you'd like to think, are friends, you know, and you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But on the other hand, um, my obligation as, as a review editor uh, is to find the best possible person to review a work so that it is judged fairly. And um, so far I've met that with a great deal of success because everybody that, uh, that I know who's at least either been a reviewer or have had things reviewed in the journal haven't said to me that they, they felt that they had been uh, mistreated in any respect. Hmm. So I've been very fortunate in that way. But uh, um, yeah, there, there, I think there's a certain obligation that you have. Uh, to to ensure that that what is being written is uh, judged fairly, not only from a scholarly viewpoint, um, but mainly from a scholarly viewpoint. But you know, you also have to to take into consideration that uh, uh, some of the things that are written are for the popular audience, mm -hmm. and not necessarily for the the scholarly one. And so you also have to take that into consideration too. It's your job, as you mentioned, as review editor of the Lincoln Herald, to get a hold of all the new Lincoln stuff. And it keeps on coming. Seems to be one of the, the times you were here before, you said that uh, on average there will be 20 or 30 new Lincoln books alone in a given year. Yeah, that total is, is 
probably around 50. Is it really? Yeah. How do you keep up with all of it? Well, it's not really as hard as people imagine it is, because once you're in the the publishing houses computers for example every time a new title is out you know you'll i will usually get a press release on it mm -hmm. um there are bookstores that deal just strictly with historical uh, material and they'll put out catalogs um and publishing houses um there isn't a week that doesn't go by that i don't have maybe five or six or seven books sitting at my doorstep you know, that are review copies okay. that are sent from publishing houses so um, yesterday, for example, I received in the mail a letter from a, a fine historian out in who teaches at Northern Virginia Community College, Terry Alford, who's basically a uh, John Wilkes Booth historian. And he wrote me and said that there was a new book coming out in September that he had found information about uh, on, online. And it's uh, basically the uh, all of the collected writings of John Wilkes Booth, which is being published uh, in connection with the Huntington Library, and so he sent me a copy of this, uh, you know, uh, announcement of this book, and uh, so right away, of course, I have to write and say, you know, please send me a review copy upon publication, but a lot of people, you know, will notify me either by phone, fax, or letter and say there's new material coming out, and, and right away I get the wheels turning to see who I can uh, find as a reviewer, and uh, but it, it's ongoing. It's just yeah. an ongoing process, but it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun, and um, I, I would say that of all of the things that are published in a given year, um, if you take 50 titles on an average, um, 10 of those are probably real sterling, fine, solid books, uh, which have um, really new information based on primary source work. Um, a, a lot of the stuff is just trash. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and sometimes, you know, usually you don't review trash. Sometimes I will uh, have it reviewed just just so people are aware of what kind of trash is really out there, you know, because I, I think you also have an obligation of, obligation of pointing that out, you know, and uh, there's a lot of it out there. Is there a repository for all this stuff other than your basement? <laughs> That's where it first ends up, <laughs> but it... it uh, uh, the, the Lincoln Field is really unique because you have, I've never met, I have never met as many um, scholars and collectors of anybody as I have for Abraham Lincoln. And I have met people who have collected things on Sherlock Holmes and people who collect on Colonial America. Um, there's even a Martin Van Buren fan club, which came to light a few years ago, if you can believe it. And the the Lincoln the, the the whole field of uh, what they call Lincolniana it's it's an industry it's a regular industry because you have over two dozen either um, local state or federal organizations that do nothing but study and meet and discuss Abraham Lincoln you have at least oh two dozen newsletters which are published either by these organizations or independently that come out and they cover anything from Abraham Lincoln. Um, there's a uh, organization in uh, Clinton, Maryland, called the Surratt Society, which owns and operates the Surratt Tavern, where Booth stopped on his flight from Washington after killing the president. The Surratt Society 
puts out a fine monthly newsletter and has over seven, eight hundred members nationwide. They operate this historic site. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. You have the Dr. Samuel Mud Home a few miles away, mm-hmm. also on Booth's Escape Trail. The whole Mud Society sure. is in full swing, and of course, Richard Mud from Saginaw, Michigan, has been trying to get his grandfather exonerated, you know, and pardoned by yeah. the federal government since at least the 1950s. Um, so you have, you know, the Surratt people and the Mud people. You have all of, of the, you know, the various state Lincoln groups which concentrate on Lincoln and when he was in their state. There's a new organization that came out a few years ago called ALP, A-L-P, which stands for the Abraham Lincoln Presenters. And they have over 50 Abes that are in full costume and meet at an annual convention. And um, I'm good friends with many of the people in that group. And um, there are some people that say, you know, like the Civil War living historians and the, you know, the sure. impersonators, they sure. say, for those who still hear the guns. And I sometimes, you know, see these Abes in costumes, and you can't help but think that someone's going to say, for those that seek medical assistance or for those that... <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> mental therapy. But it's a wonderful group, and these people are very sincere mm-hmm. in what they do, and they travel all over the United States you know, doing marvelous things to promote the study of Lincoln, and they all congregate. And as a matter of fact, I tried to get that group to hold its annual convention here at Racine in 1998. Um, and they have criteria. They're very selective on where they will meet. There's criteria that has to be met. Racine happens to meet that criteria based on uh, the connections that Lincoln has with Racine in Wisconsin. But uh, they have been meeting in the Midwest and have pledged to uh, have some West Coast and East Coast meetings. And they just, they've met in Springfield, they've met in Gettysburg. And I, and I just received a, a letter from their president the other day saying that they're planning on a West Coast uh, convention for the next year. And they're um, for 98 because uh, for, for 98 they're going to be in Charleston, Illinois, and 99 they're going to be in on somewhere on the West Coast. But he has pledged to me that he's going to be here early in the 21st century, which sounds like a long way <laughs> off, but I think I might be able to twist their arm and bring a whole um, plane load and bus load and car load and train load of Abe's to Racine, possibly in 2000 or 2001, I think it would be a great deal of fun. <laughs> Indeed it would. Steve Rogstadt uh, is with us. Uh, Steve of Racine, a Lincoln historian, review editor of the Lincoln Herald, and also a co-editor of the Many Faces of Lincoln, selected articles from the Lincoln Herald. Steve, how did, um, how did you guys go about putting together the book? Why did you decide to, to do it? Well, Lincoln Memorial University was, of course, celebrating their centennial, and there's an Abraham Lincoln Museum, which is on the campus of LMU. It's the third largest depository of Lincoln memorabilia and a Lincoln library in the United States. The first one would be in uh, Springfield, the Illinois State Historical Agency. The second's in Fort Wayne, known as the Lincoln Museum, which is funded by Lincoln National Life Insurance Company, and the Abraham Lincoln Museum, which is um, funded by LMU. And although the museum itself hasn't been there um, that long. The the university has. And the university, in some ways, was founded by Lincoln because it was his idea to do something for the people of East Tennessee and had said to a General General Oliver O. Howard in uh, 1863 at the White House, Lincoln was looking at a battle map and had pointed to Cumberland Gap and said that those people had been extremely loyal to the... uh, 
Union Army and to the Union government throughout the war. And he says, if we both get out of this horrible mess alive, and I hope we will, he says, I hope you'll do something for those people there, you know, for their loyalty. And uh, several years later, when he was, uh, when Howard was there uh, speaking to another academy, he had met a Congregationalist minister who was also there working at a small school, and they co-founded Lincoln Memorial University there in 1897. And so Lincoln basically was responsible for it being there. And um, we wanted to do something special. Uh, and, of course, the journal had been published there since 1938. And so we had decided, Tom Turner and myself, that who was a professor of history out at uh, Massachusetts, that we thought we would take selected articles w from within the pages of the Lincoln Herald between 1938 and 1995 and then publish them as a book. And it was fun because, like I said, we had, we had never met at one another, although we were very familiar with one another. And we sat down and, through our fax machines, went back and forth on how we were going to develop criteria for what would be included. And Tom's original idea was to have pre-presidential and presidential articles. And he says, you draw up a list, and we were lucky. He has a full run of the journal going back to 38. I have a full run of the journal going back to 38, so we, we could do this within our homes. Mm -hmm. And he says, you brainstorm, and I'll brainstorm, and, and let's see what we come up with. So two weeks later, uh, I sent him my list, and he sent me his list, and we were within 10 really? out of about 75 articles. We were within 10 of each other. And uh, the, the thing that I noticed early on, though, in going through the, the journal was that there were many articles that had great scholarly merit that did not fit into that criteria. For example, if you want to talk about Richard Kern's article um, talking about Lincoln in India, that wouldn't fit into that criteria. If you want to talk about um, a history of the death mask of Lincoln, what they called it, but it was actually Lincoln's last life mask, that doesn't fit into presidential, pre-presidential. Anything dealing with Lincoln in the graphic arts or Lincoln in an artsy sort of way, mm -hmm. that wouldn't fit the criteria. Anything dealing with the assassination would not fit into that category. So I came, and when I faxed him my list, I said, well, I, maybe we should just expand it to include assassination and arts. And uh, we went back and forth for about two weeks, and then we decided that uh, the publisher had indicated we were limited to like 27 to 29 articles. So then we just mutually decided that maybe what we needed to do was to look at the biggest names, the best recognized scholars that had published in the pages of the journal and see how that fit. And fortunately, we were able to come up with 28 articles. And we've picked, uh, like I said, the most recognized scholars, um, great, great Lincoln literature. Um, when we finally were able to narrow down the list, the next thing that I thought of was that, well, if we're going to publish something from, say, 1945, there might be Lincoln literature which have been published since then that in some respects either contradicts this or enhances it mm -hmm. in some respect. So even though there were some articles which were dated, they still had much scholarly merit. Or um, in the case of this book, we have two different articles that touch on the 1864 nomination process involving Lincoln. One scholar argued that Lincoln was not in any way really involved in the selection of his vice presidential candidate, which was Louis Warren, and uh, Frank Zornow from Ohio 
had argued in his book and an article in this journal that he was very much involved in the background in the selection process. So we saw that there was some merit there. So we decided that we would write introductions to each of the 28 articles. And that that was quite a, a feat in and of itself. And um, after we did that, we had recalled that in 1990 when uh, Governor Cuomo of New York and Harold Holzer out of New York had put together an anthology of Lincoln's writings on democracy for the people of Poland, that in the back of that book that they had put some biographical sketches of various authors who had contributed to the book. Well, we had thought that that was really great, but we had decided that we wanted full, complete, detailed, many biographies of every contributor that would be in the pages of this book. And so we spent about three to four months doing nothing but researching every author and editor, you know, that was in this book. And uh, we went through who's who, and we went to libraries, and we went to institutions getting information. So everybody that's mentioned in this book in terms of an author, we have their degrees and when they got them and where they got them and every university they taught at and all of the titles of all of their books and, and that sort of thing. And it's really kind of a handbook, the back of this volume. is It's really a handbook for those who are researching Lincoln scholars. Mm -hmm. It's really all there. So that was the next step. So the book was really done in pieces, finding the article, writing the introductions, and then writing the biographical sketches. And we did it all through the fax machine, really. <laughs> now, who would read The Many Faces of Lincoln? Do you have to be a Lincoln scholar of any, uh, with any kind of you know, background? No, no. Um, this is a real easy-to-read book. Um, it's written by historians. It's written by scholars. There's a few in here. You know, people are very inhibited when they see a footnote on anything. They think it's right. it's way over their head. <laughs> um, and, and basically, when reading something that has footnotes, you just are trying to keep in mind that what the historian is doing is he's just documenting where he received that piece of information. That's really the purpose mm -hmm. of a footnote. Um, it shouldn't in any way inhibit somebody from reading which what are really good readable articles and there's a wide variety of them in this 20 in this in the 28 we have uh, stories on John Wilkes Booth we have a rather novel one which was a very recent one called who's buried in Booth's tomb and uh, my friend Joseph George who wrote that um, wrote that at the time when they were thinking about exhuming the body of John Wilkes Booth and he was one of the principal players in convincing the uh, the court at that time not to exhume him. So Joseph George wrote this article talking about and making a very strong case that Booth did not escape Garrett's barn and he was indeed killed and, and, and is buried there. So mm -hmm. it's kind of a novel title though. But we also have articles on um, the War Department and Booth's abduction plot. We have uh, an article on uh, a reluctant public speaking Lincoln about really um, Lincoln's impromptu oratory. Um, we have an article on the, the life mask of Lincoln that was done in 1865. Um, we have uh, articles on Lincoln as a lawyer, um, the one about Lincoln's election in 1864. Um, Lincoln and Thanksgiving, the founding of the holiday. Sure. Uh, we have an article on that. Um, you know, there's always been a controversy about who wrote the infamous letter to the widow Bixby, who supposedly lost five sons in the Union Army, and Lincoln wrote this. And there's always been a controversy whether he or his secretary, John Hay, actually wrote the letter. So we have a, an article in there on that controversy. Hmm. And um, 
about a historian who went through India talking about Abraham Lincoln and make some comparisons to the uh, people of India, uh, the parallels between Lincoln and Gandhi, of course, hmm. and um, oh, articles on the early life of Lincoln at New Salem and various things. And we do have some um, articles on the arts which talk about uh, the printmakers who did the Emancipation Proclamation in engravings and in lithographs. So it's really a mishmash of articles, and they're very easy to read. So I, I hope people will enjoy the book. I think they will. You, you just mentioned the Lincoln in, in India article, and I had jotted that down when you mentioned it the first time because I didn't think Abraham Lincoln ever made it quite that far. Uh, so uh, could you tell us just a little bit about that because it's a fascinating idea. Well, Richard Current, um, who actually graduated um, from the University of Wisconsin, um, you, some of your listeners may recall that he has written, he wrote in 1976 the second um, volume in the history of Wisconsin dealing with the Civil War era. And uh, Current um, graduated in Wisconsin under Professor Heseltine and eventually went to uh, North Carolina where he's uh, Professor Emeritus. But he was, um, he was uh, secured to go over to India and basically go through India, and his uh, schedule had been uh, selected as to where he would speak. And he spoke at a number of universities before a number of, of graduate students about Lincoln's idea of democracy and mm -hmm. human freedom. And he was very well received. And he talks about his journeys and, you know, the cultural differences and some of the ideas that the students would uh, pose to him about Lincoln. Because uh, Current and uh, another um, scholar, our Gerald McMurtry, who was one of the ex-directors in Fort Wayne, had also traveled quite extensively during the, uh, uh, the sesquicentennial um, in 1960 mm -hmm. and traveled abroad and spoke to large groups about Lincoln, was over in, in Europe and, and China. And everywhere people go, it seems, and they talk about Lincoln. Um, there are just, a fa there is a fascination with Lincoln and the idea of human freedom. There are very few countries who have had a person like Abraham Lincoln at a time of, in, in a position of leadership at a time in their country when they were faced with great domestic turmoil. And we had Lincoln. And it's not surprising that when various countries go through these similar types of uh, difficulties that they, they look to Lincoln. The people of Poland, for example, said we would love to have a handbook that had all of Lincoln's um, sayings on democracy. And when Governor Como was over there, he came back and he promised the people of Poland that he would have this book for them the next time he came. And he went back and um, his good friend Harold Holzer, who is today the vice president of communications at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, my good friend, he, uh, he and uh, Harold Holzer sat down and put together this book, Lincoln on Democracy, which was um, published primarily for the people of Poland. And it's interesting to look at the Polish edition, which I have, and then... It was published here in America, and it has since been published in Japanese and in Hebrew. And there's more, you know, more editions coming in foreign languages because there's this, this thirst to, to learn almost everything that Lincoln had to say on, on human freedom, um, slavery, and, uh, and it continues to this day. Hmm. 
We're talking today with Steve Rogstad of Racine. Uh, Steve is uh, the co-editor of The Many Faces of Lincoln, selected articles from the Lincoln Herald, published by Mayhaven Publishing of Muhammad, Illinois. Steve is also the review editor of the Lincoln Herald, and he does it all in his spare time, folks. Steve, a couple of things you've mentioned uh, so far have kind of piqued my interest. You, you talk a little bit about you found something online. Is there a lot of Lincoln stuff out there on the net? Well, yes, there is. Um, if, if people will just type in Abraham Lincoln online, <laughs> I think they're going to be quite amazed as what, as what they're going to come into. Yes. There is a lot of chat rooms well, devoted to okay. Lincoln, and people are out there doing research. And it's not just, um, I think in some, sometimes people have the wrong ideas of chat rooms. <laughs> um, there, are serious, there is serious research being done in these chat rooms, because if you're on the West Coast, and as, as some of my fellow historians are, they don't have access. Their universities don't have the same things in them. You know, as Illinois would, for example, sure. and I get quite a few um, letters in the mail from um, particularly historians on the West Coast, more than the East Coast, because on the East Coast you have Brown, Harvard, Cambridge, who seem to have all of the Lincoln things there. Um, not so with Fullerton, San Diego, Cal you know, Los Angeles, and I do get quite a few inquiries about. Do you know where I could find this? Or do you know if anything's been written on this? I, I, I received a letter from a professor in Lincoln, Nebraska, who said, I've just finished another book, and I want to name it um, such and such. And he says, do you know if anything has ever been titled that before? Well, the title sounded very familiar to me. And I just could not put a handle on what it was. But I knew that that was a title of something, word for word. Mm -hmm. So I called up somebody else, and they went through um, their computer. I have a friend who computerizes everything in his collection. And he typed in the title, and up it came, and I knew what it was. It was a title of a lecture that had been published, you know, five, six, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And so I had to write back and say, yes, it is, you know. <laughs> it's been used already. But that's the good thing about being online. You know, you can put questions. And all of a sudden, you, sure. you know, you're getting emails of people who can genuinely help you in your search, you know, and, and I think it's great. Hmm. Um, you mentioned that um, people are interested in, or there are societies, I should say, that deal with Lincoln in each particular state that he visited during his life. How about Lincoln in Wisconsin? How much contact did Lincoln have with Wisconsin? Um, Lincoln was actually in the state twice. Um, that's documented. Uh, he was here in uh, 1832 during his service in the Black Hawk War, and he was mustered out of service uh, near Whitewater. And there's a billboard up that way that says, uh, "Near here, Lincoln's horse was stolen." You know, the day after he was mustered out of service, <laughs> oh, really? which was true. And uh, he and another companion um, traveled by canoe and by horse and by foot, and it took them six months to get back to New Salem. Illinois, which is just about 20 miles uh, northwest of Springfield. So it took them six months to get back home. Um, but then Lincoln in 1859 was invited to come and speak to the Wisconsin Agricultural Society at the Wisconsin State Fair, and he accepted. And uh, that turned out to be the only speech that Lincoln ever wrote on agriculture. Yeah. And uh, while he was in Milwaukee, um, William Tallman, 
from Janesville, when we hear about the Tallman restorations over there, the Tallman house, uh, William Tallman had come and to Milwaukee and asked Lincoln if he would be so kind as to come over and speak to the Republican groups in Beloit and Janesville, and Lincoln agreed. And you, you might recall this is a year after the Lincoln-Douglas debate, mm -hmm. so Lincoln is quite a well-known figure, and it's also the year before he does get um, nominated and elected to the presidency. So he's a high-profile figure, and to get him to come over to Janesville was quite a coup sure. for Bill Tallman. And Lincoln stayed in the Tallman home, spoke in Beloit and in Janesville. The only um, transcripts of what he said there, and I'm sure they were basically identical, um, was what was carried in the newspaper because Lincoln did not have a prepared text. And um, when Lincoln left um, Janesville in 1859, uh, that was the last time he crossed Wisconsin borders. Um, it is Mary Lincoln who was in the state twice, and she came both times, but after her husband had been killed. She came in 1867 and stayed for 40 days in Racine, and then she returned in 1872 and stayed um, a, a longer period of time in Waukesha. And both times she came to Wisconsin, she came under um, different circumstances and different pretenses. And uh, so we, we, here in the southeast part of Wisconsin, um, have ties to both Mary and Abraham Lincoln. There's no evidence except uh, Tad would have been in Racine for a very brief period of time during the Racine episode. But other than that, none of the Lincoln children were ever in Wisconsin. Robert that we know never of. Not that we Wisconsin. know of. No. I would, it's not unlikely, I would guess, that there's probably a good chunk of, of time for which we probably know where Lincoln was at literally every day. Oh, well, there, yes. In um, 1960, uh, a work was done in conjunction with the Sesquicentennial Committee, and they did put together Lincoln Day by Day, which covers basically what they knew at that time, every day of Lincoln's life from 1809 to 1865. Every day of his life? Every day of his life. Oh, my God. For what they know. Sure. There's obviously some days where it's blank, but um, that, that can be updated. That should be updated. It's a very important piece of work. And there has been a lot more that we have learned, obviously, since 1960, mm -hmm. you know, in the last 37 years. Um, which could supplement that. So that is a work that hopefully someday some scholar will tackle and really make a serious uh, endeavor to update. But yes, that, that has been done. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a specialty? Do I have a specialty? Yeah. I think that if I had a... Spe if so, yeah. I read everything, and everything interests me. Some things more than others. But I would say my specialty probably deals... Um, with uh, the early life of Lincoln, which I'm real fascinated by, and I would also say Lincoln's religious faith. Hmm. Um, that that is a, a very keen aspect of the Lincoln study for me, and part of my collection at home. Um, I try to specialize in collecting uh, and going back now, especially in finding a lot of the older works that deal with Lincoln's religion. And most of it, um, there's maybe 12 books that deal with that subject, but there's a great deal of, of pamphlets and leaflets and things of that nature which were written uh, between 1865 and like the 1930, great deal of material. People were coming to grips with why Lincoln was killed at the height of his popularity. Mm -hmm. um, the ministers, of course, during the aftermath of the assassination were trying to explain to the people why this would have happened, and then we 
we came into the whole martyrdom issue, um, comparisons of Lincoln and Jesus Christ, the similarities there, the similarities between Lincoln and Washington. You know, Washington was the founder of our country. You know, Lincoln now was the savior of our country. And then the, the parallel extended further into comparisons with Christ. And if you wipe all that away and you just try to deal with Lincoln as an individual and his own religious spiritual journey, those are really two different aspects of, mm -hmm. of the spiritual issue. And I try to, to, to get past the first to really concentrate on the second, because I think that's where the meat of it is. I have it in my mind, and perhaps this is a mistaken impression, that while uh, Lincoln was a spiritual man, he was, wasn't necessarily a churchgoer. Oh, was no, he? not at all. Well, he, he became more of a churchgoer I would say, in the last three years of his life, um, especially after the death of his 12-year-old son, Willie, in the White House, and coming to, to terms with that loss in conjunction with, the, by that time, the terrific carnage that was taking place in the battlefield. You know, that was, a, that was a, an extremely heavy load for him to bear, and especially after 1862, um, you find that Lincoln deals with that more of those issues almost solely on a spiritual level, uh, more than on any other level. Um, but we have a tendency of taking a look at Lincoln and the Lincoln Memorial and the various monuments that we have, and in our minds, in, in, in popular culture, especially which, with what we see, um, we tend to believe that Lincoln was predestined for greatness and there was always greatness about him and that he was born into a, a devout Christian family and was a devout Christian child and, and was a extremely honest and uh, politician who you know never compromised uh, on moral issues and and you go through that 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 whole issue you know and you just believe that this was somebody who was almost non-human mm -hmm. you know when you really study Lincoln's words and you study Lincoln's life experiences uh, he becomes very human and you almost gain a much more uh, better understanding of who he was in the the, the great personal um, trials that he went through to arrive at where he did spiritually and that's what I find very fascinating mm -hmm. I believe when we spoke before, one of our previous interviews was about the, largely about the early life of, of Lincoln. Uh, what was, uh, were his mother and father, uh, then later stepmother, uh, religious people? Or was he raised, did well, he yes, read, he, read the Bible? I would. He, was, he was born into uh, not abject poverty, as some early biographers had, have claimed. Uh, but he was, he was born into a poor family. Um, his mother and father were Baptist by origin and uh, eventually joined what they called the Free Will Baptists because that faction of the Baptist um, denomination was against slavery. And so um, we at least know that he was born into a family that um, did not approve of slavery. And, but Lincoln himself, um, you don't find any evidence. You know, he went, they didn't have churches where he lived. You know, you had to find a itinerant evangelist or somebody who was coming through the area who would stop for a few you know, weeks at a time, possibly, to give sermons and have camp meetings and things of this mm. nature. Um, but there weren't organized church buildings, you know, in, in large structures. Um, Lincoln really doesn't experience that type of organized religion until he moves to Springfield in 1837 when he's already in his mid-20s. And 
in Springfield, he, he writes and says, I haven't been to church yet, and I don't think I will because I, 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 I'm conscious that I don't know how to behave. He, he didn't know what to do in a church building, and he wasn't raised in that environment. And um, his, in, in that respect, his wife was very helpful because she came from Lexington, Kentucky, and was raised in a very wealthy um, Episcopal Presbyterian family and uh, affiliates with the Presbyterian Church in Springfield. Lincoln never joined. She joined. And he would go with her. And James Smith, who was involved in the rector of that Presbyterian church, was very influential initially in Lincoln accepting the Christian faith wholeheartedly. Um, but it wasn't until after many years later, in 1862, after the death of Willie, that that faith became more of a real living thing within him. But uh, um, he he basically, when he did attend church in Springfield and Washington, it was the Presbyterian Church, yes. Hmm. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Um, you also mentioned a little bit earlier Dr. Mudd and uh, the... the uh, controversy that has raged for 130 some odd years now over Dr. Mudd and just the day before yesterday I believe it was there was a wire story that uh, it's a Michigan congressman I think named Ewing whose father uh, or, or excuse me an ancestor defended Dr. Mudd I believe at his at the at the trial he is now trying to he wants to get the president to to clear Dr. Mudd's name as as a Lincoln historian as a guy who's done a lot of reading a lot of research talk to a lot of people what are your thoughts about Dr. Mudd? I have great admiration for Richard Mudd, uh, who is the grandson who's trying to clear his name. He's a wonderful old gentleman. I, I think he must be around 90, 91 at I this time. I talked with him a couple of years ago, and he was 94. Yeah, 95. he's out of Saginaw, Michigan. Mm -hmm. uh, and there have been documentaries done just on, on him. I have very little sympathy, however, with the attempt to exonerate Dr. Samuel Mudd from complicity in the Lincoln assassination. There is, is, there is a, um, what I would consider a substantial amount of evidence that Dr. Mudd was not necessarily involved in the assassination directly in that he knew what Booth was doing, but he knew, he, <clears throat> the whole premise rests on Mudd saying that when, when Booth and Harold had fled Washington, Booth, of course, had a broken leg. They came to Mudd's home in the middle of the night. Um, Mudd claims he did not know who either of these gentlemen were, simply was offering medical assistance, as was his calling to do. Mm. And uh, later on, when he found that Lincoln had been murdered, that he went right away to the authorities and reported these two strange men um, and was taken into custody, questioned, and, and subsequently was tried, found guilty, and given life imprisonment. However, there's just overwhelming evidence that he was um, meeting with Booth as early as 1864 in Washington. Um, he was a very pro-Confederate sympathizer. He lived in this stretch of Maryland, which was predominantly pro-Southern. Um, when Booth went into this peninsula, um, when he was working out his abduction schemes in 1864, he stopped at the Mud Home. He stopped at a lot of homes in that area and found out a lot about the topography of the land and where to cross the river because the, the idea was to carry Lincoln and hold him ransom and take him down through this stretch of Maryland across down to Richmond and give him to Jeff Davis to hold for exchange for prisoners of war to keep the war effort going. And... Uh, 
you know, Mudd is seen in Washington. He's seen talking with Booth. Um, it's hard to believe, even though supposedly Booth was wearing a false beard and mustache, that he had no inkling who this man was, whom he had just seen a couple of months before. And also when uh, they uh, they had to cut Booth's boot off of his leg because his leg and ankle and foot were so swollen, and they hid the boot under the bed because it had JWB stitched on the on the boot, and uh, it really wasn't after these two men mysteriously left the mud home. Mud showed them how to get away from that area without using the main roads, which was through swamps and marshes, and he waits two days before he goes to the authorities and talks about them. So when you listen to Richard Mudd's story, it's, it's a slightly different historical version than what you will actually read in the assassination books. Um, I don't believe that Dr. Mudd probably knew that Lincoln was assassinated. I don't know how he could have. Booth hadn't been down in that area um, for, for weeks and months before that. The communication lines were so bad at that time, it was almost... Um, you know, a matter of, of a day before the news came down there that Lincoln had been murdered, and you're only talking like, you know, 30, 35 miles. So mm -hmm. um, it, uh, I mean, I, I, I feel for Richard Mudd. I'm, I'm sure there's nothing that he would love better than to have the government exonerate his grandfather, but I don't think he's going to live to see it. You've been listening to a morning show conversation recorded at some point in the mid-1990s between Bill Guy longtime news director here at WGTD and creator of The Morning Show, and one of his all-time favorite guests, Steve Rogstead. I'm Gregory Berg.